0: So I always say that the greatest gift that we can give our children is bilingualism. But even a greater gift that we can give their families is that empowerment. And the empowerment can only come through the knowledge that they gain when they actually see the opportunities that being bilingual will bring their child in this country.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are some of the most important sources of research on dual language programs, and how can they help school leaders and educators shape valuable learning experiences for all students? What are the three pillars of dual language, and what role does each of them play in high quality programs? What challenges do we face in addressing the shortage of bilingual educators, and what are some possible solutions? We discuss these questions and much more in part one of a two-part series with Sandra Medrano-Arroyo. Sandra currently works at Elevation Education as the Dual Language Instructional Content Specialist, where she has spearheaded the creation of two new instructional practices specific to the needs of dual language programs. In over 23 years in education, she has served the needs of emergent bilinguals and various subgroups in a number of roles. Teacher, academic coordinator, school director, recruiter, instructional specialist, and program planner. Prior to Elevation, Sandra served as the manager of multicultural education for the 11th largest school district in the United States, overseeing the ESOL program for over 34,000 students, including a two-way dual language program that served over 9,000 students. Since 2016, she has also served as a PD consultant for the National Association of Bilingual Education. As you'll hear in our conversation, Sandra has a natural ability to bridge the gap between research and practice by breaking down concepts and findings into bite-sized pieces that educators can use right away, which is one of the many reasons I am happy to have her as a colleague at Elevation and as an advocate in the field of multilingual education. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations, and I hope you enjoy part one of our two-part conversation with Sandra Medrano Arroyo. Sandra Medrano Arroyo, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. This has been a long time coming.
0: Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure being here this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. You're one of, I think, maybe four or five at this point, Elevation people that we've uh, that we've interviewed, which is really fun um, getting to know you kind of on a different level and and sharing your expertise, which you have a lot of. So I'm excited to dive in. Thank you. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I know that you're a former multilingual learner from, from New York City with parents from Puerto Rico and Cuba. Um, and your personal history, I usually don't start here, but your personal history seems to have really greatly influenced you and in your professional trajectory. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Kind of give us the short version of, of how you got to where you are now?
0: Absolutely. So it's really funny because I, I never really thought about it until you put it, you put it that way, right? Um, I knew that I had, always, I had always wanted to help people. Um, I know that as an ELL in New York City with Spanish-speaking parents, um, I know that I struggled. I didn't obviously realize that at that moment, but later on in my educational life, I looked back and realized, hmm, I don't think that was the right way. <laughs> I don't think putting me in a special ed class was the right way for me to learn English, but I obviously did learn English. <laughs> it did happen. Um But as I look back on my life, I do realize that um, even as a parent, I made sure to raise my children bilingually and biculturally because I did learn English in school, but my parents made sure that I never lost my Spanish. So at home, I only spoke Spanish. We only read in Spanish. Um, I communicated in writing with my grandparents in Spanish. And so I was raised bilingually and biculturally, and I made sure to do the same for my kids because I did realize the gift that it is. Um, But when I think about the personal experiences, and how it's impacted my life, my professional life, I think that one of those eye-opening moments was when I found myself recruiting bilingual teachers for the school district. And I realized that students were not seeing themselves and their culture represented in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I realized that the academic, the social, uh, cultural challenges that they, they were facing, they and their families were facing, were not being met. Um, I realized that Spanish-speaking students, or any native-speaking student aside from native English, were not given the opportunity to maintain their language, and so that, to me, that that just that was wrong. I, I had to do something about that, right? Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. I truly decided I need to become an advocate for our kids and our family. And so, unfortunately, um, the majority of our students that speak another language are not provided the opportunity to keep it. You know, more and more we're seeing bilingual programs pop up across the nation, which is exciting mm-hmm. and inspiring. But unfortunately for so long, kids were not allowed to speak their language in school. And that's a huge part of who they are.
1: Yeah, you know, what strikes me is that you had an experience perhaps that was not the norm or a common experience as a child with your with your parents making sure that you... Kept that language, where many people. I mean, myself. I remember, you know, uh, my father uh, is is from Greece, and you know, when he was growing up, it was speak English, only speak English, and and for him, that was ingrained in him. And luckily, he was at a point where he had already learned enough Greek that he was going to be bilingual. Um, but that died with 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 him. You know, I I never learned it because it was never prioritized for me. It was a different situation. But for you to have that influence um, and be able to communicate and use your home language and value it, right, and then see in schools, when you started uh, working in schools, that that wasn't happening and understanding the value of it, that's such a great connection to have. And just the empathy that you must um, have brought with you must have been really, really important for you and for the students that you served.
0: It gave me an opportunity, honestly, to be able to have Um, very empowering conversations with family members Mm -hmm. because oftentimes as parents, as your father um, said, you know, you've got to speak English. Many parents, their mentality is they've come to this country for a better life so that they can give a better life to their kids. And so learning English is their top priority.
1: That's the key. He'll
0: learn Spanish at home or he'll speak Haitian Creole at home. And he will on a social level. Right. So I always say that the greatest gift that we can give our children is bilingualism, but even a greater gift that we can give their families is that empowerment. Mm-hmm. And the empowerment can only come through the knowledge that they gain when they actually see the opportunities that being bilingual will bring their child in this country right? and, and throughout the world, right? And so... Just as many administrators, who I'm sure are going to listen to this podcast, I had a lot of Spanish-speaking parents resist that suggestion for their child to maintain their language in a dual language program, regardless of how many times I told them they're going to learn English. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I promise you. Um, But again, they're, they're just wanting a better life for their child. And so in their mind, that's through English. English is the universal language.
1: Of course, it's it's well intended, right? But that's you. You know, you have to you get that through education and through um, mm-hmm. lots of lots of different family engagement strategies. Which is a topic that we've covered, and I'm 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 very tempted to go down that rabbit hole, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go back to to bilingualism and do language programs because that's what I want to talk with you mostly about today. Um, one thing that I really appreciated about about your perspective and something that I talk a lot about in the podcast and I talked a lot about as a teacher. And I talked a lot about when I was at the Harvard Graduate School of Education doing a lot of research is this gap between research and practice. And you really you and a lot of others, I think, really have the ability to bridge that gap. And so I, I want to kind of get into that a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the Thomas and Collier study um, is, a, is a seminal piece in, in dual language research, but not all teachers, including me, uh, really know a whole lot about it. Um, And researchers don't necessarily understand in some cases how that actually plays out on a daily basis at school, or at least that's the perspective of many teachers who are looking at these folks like you're in your university or your ivory tower doing all this research, but how does it apply here? Um, Could you explain what it tells us and how you've seen it play out, uh, particularly in the 14 years of experience that you had um, at Palm Beach?
0: Sure. So, Thomas and Collier—they're the gurus of dual language, right? We, <laughs> we all look to Thomas and Collier always. Um, they're amazing. I never tire of hearing their, uh, their conversations. And you, that you can tell just
1: the, the the way that you're expressing it. You can tell the happiness I just
0: did. that they're, they're fabulous. <laughs> you know, and what's fabulous—not only them personally, you no, know, but their groundbreak breaking studies. Because for the longest time, you have you have different research studies, but for them to have been able to provide a longitudinal study of thousands of kids in the program is amazing. And the comparison that they have between all the different types of programs that districts use to serve our multilingual learners, that's very hard to come by. And I believe they were probably the very first ones to do anything like that, which is why we always look at their graph. Um, But they were able to demonstrate that most students, after four or seven, four, anywhere from four to seven years of dual language education, those bilingual students outperform their monolingual peers in all subjects on standardized tests. Mm-hmm. That's huge for yeah. a program to do for our right? And the data also showed that subjects that students um, participating in a strong dual language program—and we'll talk about a strong program what that truly means in a little while—I'm sure. But one that runs a K-12 path was the only program that was proven to fully close that academic achievement gap. Again, huge, because there's not a lot of programs that have that claim to fame, right? Right. And then I, what I love the most, obviously, is that they, their data included not only the English learners, but it also included their native English speakers.
1: Which I think is right. so important, yep, and powerful.
0: Absolutely. We go back to the gift of bilingualism, which mm-hmm. I say. <laughs> And so, when I think back of all the years that I was in Palm Beach County, right, and all the different roles that I played within dual language programs, um, after those, I think it—I think it was really 16 years that I was in dual language. Um, I had the opportunity to see our dual language students begin to reach grade level proficiency in a second language in as little as four years. Mm. Again, our English learners in traditional classrooms and different types of programs uh, of models were not achieving English proficiency at that rate. Took them a little longer, about a year and a half or two. Again, there's lots of variables that play into that, but the program itself I know has a lot to do with it. Um, I saw kids graduate with a seal of biliteracy who were able to move fluidly between two languages at any given time on an academic level, on a social level, Um, And they maintained their English. It was perfect. They learned their second language. And once again, they outperformed their peers. And I think that, you know, one of the takeaways from that research is that children really need time to learn how the language works. District administrators really need to look at um, different types of models and the demographics that they have and Go out on a limb sometimes, take that Mm -hmm. leap of faith and implement a program that perhaps at that moment doesn't, doesn't, you know, they they may not wrap their heads around (laughs) exactly how will this look in a couple of years, you know, in testing grades as they move into middle school. It is a leap of faith, but the data will prove it. I saw it. I saw it in, in our school district.
1: Yeah. I mean, and thanks for breaking that down in such a simple way, because you know, if you're like me and you're reading through that research, it can be a bit of a... It can Overwhelming. Be yeah. <laughs> not a bit for me. I need it broken down like you just did. So I'm sure there are many people that find that helpful as well, because having that research and having that proof in front of you, when you take that leap of faith, which it is, right? And it, it seems in many ways to many people, particularly those who aren't well-educated in this field, through no fault of their own, Uh, if they're an administrator, it seems like a leap of faith. And it might seem even counterintuitive. Um, But to have that research uh, and to have that data um, is is key. And again, thanks for breaking that down. And the other thing that that you and I have talked a little bit about is is the the goals being broken down in, in what are called the three pillars. So high academic achievement, bilingualism and biliteracy, and sociocultural competence, which you kind of, I think, alluded to a little bit in what you were talking about before, But could you discuss how those three things play out in, in, and you talked about good dual language programs. So how does that, where's that distinction made and how do those three pillars play in?
0: So there's this great visual of three pillars, right, holding up what appears to be a coliseum, right? And so I think back and I said, there's so many structures in place um, after hundreds of years that are still in place, but why are they still there? Because the foundation was a strong foundation. And the same thing happens with your dual language program. So when I say a good, when I say effective, sustainable, uh, strong dual language program, it's because it has to be built on those three pillars. And the three pillars are um, high academic achievement in both program languages, bilingualism and biliteracy, and then sociocultural competence. But it's more than just saying these are our three pillars. It's making sure that every decision instructional, staffing, program structure. I mean, every single decision as a school administrator or a district administrator is taken with that in mind, that the research is actually looked at. I mean, I rely heavily throughout my years, and I still do in Elevation. I rely heavily on the guiding principles for dual language education, which was released. um, The third edition was their last edition, um, released a couple of years ago the Center for Applied Linguistics and a couple of incredible authors, including our very own dual language advisor, Dr. Jose Medina Mm -hmm. um, was one of the authors of that. And if there's any doubt, I'd always pull out the book when I sat with the district administrator and tell them, let's see what it says here. Here's what we're aiming for. And, And that's, it's hard when we say high academic achievement in two languages, what does that truly mean? Because we don't teach every subject in every language So how do you attain that, you know, and and what has to happen behind the scenes? For example, teachers collaborating, planning together, um, understanding themselves, the similarities and the differences between two languages. And now how do you teach that? How do you explicitly teach that to our kids so they learn it and eventually they become the owners of that and they can start to see those similarities and differences, Um, It takes a lot of conversation, a lot of collaboration, like I mentioned, um, and a lot of reading of the research.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, what strikes me, what I'm thinking about is you've been speaking about this foundation in particular and all the collaboration and conversations and how it needs to be baked in. And there needs to be some backwards planning. And you mentioned the seal of biliteracy, which perhaps is a way to kind of get people there and maybe an impetus for districts to kind of start these conversations we've talked about the seal of biliteracy. We've talked about co-teaching and co-planning. We've talked about all these little pieces, but what I really appreciate about what you're doing is you're sort of zooming out, right? And talking about what you need to do to really get all those things in place. I'm struck by, I'm really thinking about all the conversations that I've had on this podcast and in many different places about the like little minute details that are really, really important that a teacher does, or that an administrator does, or that whoever a student does. But in those little minute details, there or, or there needs to be a framework around them, right? And what you're describing, it, it seems to be kind of like the zoomed out picture of what all those elements fit into. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Maybe you could say it a little bit better.
0: <laughs> that does. Um, yeah, I guess I zoomed out of our our graphic <laughs> is what I just Well, did. Which is a good but- thing though, right? Because you
1: can't like all these little pieces that I feel like, and this is what I thought as a teacher many times, and I taught high school Spanish, right? So I wasn't teaching. Um, I wasn't teaching multi- while well, I was teaching students to, 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 to learn Spanish in an academic setting. And I always felt like, boy, if the system was set up in a different way, I could really, really make some great changes. And I was given a tremendous amount of freedom as a teacher, which I always appreciated, but there were still limitations. So with this framework in place, right, it, I feel like all those little elements now are able to be they're able to be part of the recipe as opposed to just ingredients sort of sitting on the shelf. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I've always used myself and and anyone who's worked with me knows that I always ask that question, well, what does this look like? So when we say bilingualism and biliteracy, well, what does that look like? I know what it is. I can read about it. But what does it look like in your classroom, in your school, in that district Because it'll always look a little different. You know, it's funny you mentioned ingredients because years ago I did a PD. I used to do a PD and it was um, about taking, you have basic ingredients for a cake, right? So we've got basic ingredients that are necessary for a dual language program, which are our three pillars. But then every school adds a little flavor. Maybe you like more chocolate. Maybe I want my filling to be dulce de leche. You know, we're all going to add something a little different to it because that's what fits The demographics of the school, the culture of the school, um, you know, having that community input also is huge. And and as district administrators and school administrators, we need to listen to them. They're our greatest advocates for these programs. And so every one of them will look different, but truly stepping back and saying, okay, so yes, I've got to ensure that our kids are bilingual and biliterate, but what does that look like? What does that mean for us?
1: Yeah, I think that's great. It's highly contextualized depending on where you are. I mean, in so many different ways. I really like that recipe and ingredient model. I'm sort of channeling our colleague, uh, Daniel Sabinski, who's, who's the master of making those <laughs> kinds of analogies, if anybody who's I'm listening. very proud. <laughs> right. I hope so. I hope so. I hope I didn't let him down. Um, okay. So another, another key element of all this, right, that is a challenge is, um, you know, you, you've just mentioned lots of the ingredients and lots of the research that makes this um, that makes this work and makes it tick, but we have a problem with finding teachers, right? Uh, that is, I've talked to a lot of people about that, where it's something we're going to talk about in our impact uh, conference that's coming up in December. Um, how have you, have you seen viable solutions to this problem, finding these highly qualified teachers to do this kind of work? I mean, I was never trained as a high school teacher to do any of this work, even as a language teacher.
0: because that's how I entered the school district that I worked at as a bilingual personnel specialist, it was my job to go out there and find anyone who spoke a different language and represented the demographics of our school district, because at that moment, you know, it was a pivotal time and, and our demographics were really taking a turn and we simply didn't have Um, The number of teachers that we needed in the classrooms that truly represented our our demographics. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when we we talk so much about equity, and I think that that's one of the key pieces in a school when when you're recruiting to ensure that you've got individuals there that kids can bond with, that kids understand, that, that understand the challenges that our kids and their families are going through, whether they were born here or came to us from another country. Um, And that is so difficult, so difficult. (laughs) And the pandemic hasn't made it any better at all, unfortunately. Um, There were a lot of things, and I know a lot of districts do a lot of things that are so out of the box, and I love reading about it. I can tell you that um, the very one thing that has to be a priority in a school district is that the entire district needs to understand that that's a priority. Mm -hmm. So that's everything from the financial department to the teacher's union, to professional development, to the curricular department, and of course, HR. Everyone needs to understand the benefits of a dual language program. Everyone needs to understand that data and how our kids outperform their peers after just a couple of years in the program.
1: Yeah, all kids again.
0: They need to understand what the curriculum looks like because all of these things. Um, first of all, if HR reps don't understand the demands of the job and the specific level of proficiency that a teacher needs to have also to teach in the program, they're not going to select the right candidate. Upon not selecting the right candidate and having other issues come into play, for example, curriculum, or there's no bilingual stipend, or any of those other factors, now you're looking at retention. Now, how do you keep these teachers? Right, right. You got someone who's bilingual, but she's going to go down, you know, a couple of a couple of exits on our turnpike and maybe go somewhere else because they do offer those types of financial incentives. So there, that's why I said that it's really important that an entire the district as an entire um we'll say community, right? <laughs> Get mm-hmm. together and truly analyze every single part and division and make sure that everyone's aligned with that priority of recruiting. And then as I think back, you know, creating partnerships with local universities, that was huge for us. We were yep. able to get, work together with grants and take our bilingual pro- paraprofessionals. And those who were interested in furthering their degree, we were able to pay with that grant for them to continue their studies and become yep. certified. You know, um, there was also financial incentives of, well, if you're temporarily certified and you need to take a certification exam, the district will pay for you. We'll, we'll pay for your exam because those exams are not, they're not reasonably priced, let's say. Right,
1: they're not. They're expensive. Yeah.
0: And so that's a nice financial perk to be able to tell somebody, go ahead and sign up for the exam. We've got your back. We want yeah. you to stay with us. You know, um, It was also a great opportunity for individuals who had come to our county and were professionals in their own country to be able to bring them in and say, here are the steps needed for you to take your experience, your qualifications from your country, and we're going to help use that, tap into that, so that then you can help us and be Mm -hmm. teachers in our classrooms. So a lot of those things happen because of the partnerships with the universities. And then of course we have grow your own, which are so popular right now, thankfully, because again, tapping into the students that we produce, in a district where after 24, 25 years, we have so many kids who have graduated with a literacy, proficient in both languages, to tap into that, to give them a contract when they graduate high school and say, hey, finish school. We're here for you. Come back to your community. Yeah, um, That's great. You walk away with a high school diploma and you walk away with, you know, a job contract already.
1: Right. Um, so yeah,
0: there's you- a lot of different steps. And then, of course, there's always the visa sponsorship. Mm-hmm which districts I think more and more are looking towards. There's a lot of companies also that um, provide that assistance to districts because not only does it bring someone who knows the language, but it brings someone who is in tune with their culture. And so kids can obtain an even better understanding of a specific culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, to break, we, we've talked about all those things uh, on the podcast. In fact, like the the, the grow your own programs, Amaya Garcia from New America has done a lot of work on that. She's going to be moderating our panel on um, on this very topic on on teacher uh, getting the right teachers and then and then retaining them. Um, it's funny you mentioned the university partnerships, which is huge. And if you have a community where you're lucky enough to have a university there, and you can create a partnership, even if it's not close, that's proven useful our own now our own Christina Soprano who was doing that in Rhode Island actually she came on the podcast before she was ever working with us which is great to have her on board because she was she was doing a lot of work with that and then you know the, the those two seem to be not to dwell too much on this topic but I think it's really interesting especially now those two seem to be pretty well received by everyone the one that i've heard a variety of different things and you just mentioned some positives about it is the visa sponsorships where the concern there, right, is that most of those people are going to end up going back to their home countries. So the retention can be can be can be tricky. Right. Mm-hmm. But I see yeah. the positive there, too. I mean, it's something that I always wanted to do as a teacher. I wanted to travel, you know, on a um, uh, I forget what they call it, the, um I can't forget. I can't remember the name, but there was a way where you go and teach in another country, and then a teacher would come to your your uh, your district to work. And something I always wanted to do, but I would have left. I would have gone to another school. And if I were a good teacher, say in wherever I was in Chile, and I had to leave, then they were stuck, and vice versa. Right? So it's tricky. It is tricky. You know, one of my responses
0: in the district used to be that there is no telling when you hire someone here locally that they're going to stay with you for three years either.
1: Right. You're right. It's a good point.
0: (laughs) At the end of the day, we don't know because of so many other different factors, personal as well as professional, you know, that we we discussed in that other question. But um, the visa sponsorship. So there's two ways of doing it. You can have teachers come to you as exchange teachers and um, stay up to three or five years. Every state has different uh, regulations around that. And you know, some of we had many of them fell in love and made a, yeah, a life yeah, here. Yeah. You know, and and so you don't promote that, but you don't stop that.
1: Exactly, you can't. <laughs> That's what they do. On the contrary,
0: you go to the wedding, you celebrate with them, <laughs> and, yeah. and then you 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 know relish the fact that this teacher remained. But there are um, other districts that have once again that leap of faith, that commitment as a district, as opposed to commitment as a school of saying, you know what, we're going to offer our visas. And if our teachers work out and their evaluations, you know, for X number of years are satisfactory, we're going to offer them the chance to stay. You know, and they put their parameters around that. Is it expensive? It is. But when you start looking at how expensive teacher turnover is, regardless, and that's here recruiting here, <laughs> mm-hmm. then it really doesn't look that expensive after all, but it does take a huge effort on behalf of a district.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate your perspective there. I think you just kind of swayed me a little bit. I've heard a lot of people talk about the other side and of course, just like everything else, it's going to have different sides and it's a debate worth having. Um, but the personal piece is, is, is crucial. And like you said, while you don't promote, you just don't know what's going to happen with the teacher here, especially with the attrition rate that we see normally. So. Um, It's really interesting. And I think, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it's highly contextualized to where you are and what you need. But having those three options that you just lined up as possibilities, um, certainly, certainly helpful. That's it for part one of this two-part series of Highest Aspirations. In part two, we'll talk with Sandra about how we can help convince colleagues, families, and community members to become advocates for dual language programs, what it means to truly embrace biliteracy, and why embracing bilingualism is good for all students. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations.